honestly. Some of my favorite little people call me that, right? We're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Luke this evening. We will not read the entire thing. Sorry, Canaan. <laughs> Over time. Yeah, it would, uh, we can, we're going to give you an outline, though. And uh, you can use that to read it over time. How about that? All right, so for our call to worship, we actually read the first little bit of the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the third synoptic gospel uh, in our scriptures. Synoptic meaning that they are viewing things through a similar lens. Uh, we, we certainly know that there are differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Luke is, um, from a detail perspective, a bit more detailed, and we'll get into that here shortly. But uh, what I would like to do for you this evening is do a bit of teaching and do a bit of preaching. And um, we'll take a look at Luke from its structure. We'll provide uh, authorship, audience. Uh, I'll give you an outline. And then from the outline, what I would like to do to help you uh, get a better picture for that is I'm going to give you a key scripture from each of the areas in the outline. I, I think that's helpful. And by doing so, my hope is that I'm going to convey the gospel message to you in one scripture verse from each point of the outline. And then at the end, hopefully you will have heard the good news according to Luke. So our call to worship begins and provides us a ton of detail. So we're going to read that again, and then we'll move on into the authorship audience and uh, other areas that, that I mentioned that we're going to discuss. So as Luke begins his gospel, it says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled amongst. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the, certain, with, know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Now this opening is wonderfully eloquent. It is very instructive, and we're going to refer back to it, uh, not, not directly by uh, stating chapter verse, but we're gonna refer back to it in word uh, as we talk about the authorship and the audience of the Gospel of Luke. So Luke, the gospel, uh, does not have uh, the author named specifically. Uh, we obviously have the book named Luke, and we also have a companion book that was written along with it by the same author, seemingly. That book is the book of Acts. And church tradition has assigned the authorship of both of those books to the beloved physician Luke. Uh, church tradition has also taught that Luke, in the compiling and putting together his uh, eyewitness accounts, actually talked with or interviewed many of the people uh, that, that would have been present with the Lord. And so, as he writes, he is able to give us very expressive language uh, and uh, preserve their thoughts and things that occurred. An example of this would be uh, the recording of Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. If you were to, to look at Mary's song, it says, And Mary said, well, that would lead us to believe that the person may have firsthand knowledge or may have talked to Mary. Uh, and uh, the early church believed that uh, that was certainly something that Luke had done, was talk to people with direct firsthand knowledge or talked with specifically Mary, the mother of Christ. 
This is beautiful and it is wonderful. And what it allows for a historian like uh, Luke to do is to provide us with a richness in detail. If you were to read Matthew and you're to read Mark and then you read Luke, you will find that there's a lot of additional detail in some of the accounts that are synoptic, meaning they're recorded in all three. And then there's a wealth of material that Luke includes that goes well beyond what Matthew and Mark do, as we don't have an exact copy in those three synoptic gospels. And we'll talk a little bit about some of those differences and about some of the beautifulness of the fact that Luke was so detailed because he provides stories and accounts um, taught by Christ that we wouldn't have otherwise, right? Uh, and we'll, we'll make some, some uh, introductions and discuss those shortly. So we, uh, we agree with uh, church history and church historians that the author of the book of Luke was written by Luke. If you are wondering, well, where is this Luke guy mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, I'm glad that you asked, because we could look to Colossians, right? If we look to Colossians at the end of Colossians, we will see that in the closing greetings of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Now, that would lead us to believe that Luke, the physician, the the author of the Gospel of Luke, is a real person. He is physically with Paul, and he is ministering along with Paul. Now, if we wanted to see a little bit further evidence or another mention of Paul, we could look to one of the last writings of the Apostle Paul, and we could look at 2 Timothy. Now, when we do this, I want you to notice a a small detail here. Notice he had Demas, and he had... Uh, the beloved physician Paul, and I'm going to read for you just for a little bit out, out of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 9. And it says, Make every effort to come see me soon, because Demas has deserted me, since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. And then in verse 11, it says, Only Luke is with me. So Luke was with Paul, potentially starting on the second missionary journey potentially with him also on the third missionary journey. And finally here in Rome, Luke, it says, is the one who is still with him. He is, he is writing uh, his gospel or the accounts of Christ while he is with Paul, right? So with, a, with an apostle and while interviewing these other people as he had an opportunity to travel, Luke is faithfully serving the church, faithfully writing uh, to the church and uh, we are to see that he has stuck it out and is with Paul to the end. For the audience of, of Luke's writing, uh, we, we refer back to chapter 1 that we read for our call to worship. If we looked at Luke's saying uh, he has carefully investigated from the very first and is now writing an orderly sequence to a person named Theophilus. Now, we may know with certainty that he is writing to Theophilus, and he is writing to tell Theophilus all of the things that he has been taught. He is reinforcing and providing evidence for these things, but we don't really know who Theophilus is. Now, I mentioned earlier that Luke had written Luke and Acts, and if you read in Acts, you'll see another reference to uh, Theophilus, but we don't really know who that was. Now, there are several theories. I'm not going to go into all the theories that might be a subject for an answers in August or a focus in February for Womble and some point in the future, who was Theophilus. But um, 
Theophilus could have been a pseudonym. Uh, we see the greeting uh, for Theophilus being the most honorable or giving him like an elevated title. So he could have been someone who was very important. And so maybe Luke was writing to this pseudonym, Theophilus, which would have been a friend of God, uh, is, is what Theophilus would mean. So he could have been writing to a friend of God's who he was trying to protect, protect their identity. That, that's one theory that has been put forth. Another is that Theophilus was a very wealthy, influential person in that day and time, potentially connected to the government, potentially connected to uh, the, the uh, Jewish church. And because of that, uh, maybe he had been taught, maybe he had been converted, and now uh, he is being written to by Luke so that Luke can provide him additional evidences and, and, and showing him so that he can be certain about the things that he has been instructed. What's important to know about both of these is that they're just theories, right? There are other theories about who he may have been. And it's not really as important who Theophilus is. What's important is that Luke thought it was important enough to put down an orderly uh, uh, writing of what happened with Christ. And it was inspired, it was preserved, and it, is, it was circulated, and we have it today so that we too can be as Theophilus. We can be assured of what we have been taught because Luke has done the historical work to show us. Now, there have been critics over the years of the writing of Luke, not only looking at the authorship and the audience and things like that, but in researching what, what has been found is that Luke was very, very thorough and that in looking at the writings and the traditions of the early church and eyewitness accounts and what the other books of the Bible says, Luke has been proven over and over again to be very, very thorough and very, very reliable. And we thank God for selecting someone who was so thorough and so reliable to write his scripture. Now, in the purpose of writing, if we look at Luke in comparison to Mark and Matthew, we'll notice that uh, I mentioned that there are many parallel accounts where we will have the same story told in each one. Matthew's gospel is primarily written to the Jewish people. Uh, you see that starting off with the genealogies in Matthew. Uh, the accounts that are written all are written to and for the Jewish people. Mark is a Cliff Notes version, right? Mark is a much shorter, much more direct and uh, his, his writing is to, to educate, but to do so in a, a briefer form. And you'll notice that Mark is shorter and contains less of the accounts, but he is focused on communicating the gospel at its core. When we get to Luke, Luke is communicating to a Gentile audience. And this gives us a little bit of information that, we, that we, I, I think is super important, but it, it is very interesting when we think about the writings that are contained in God's word. In God's word, it's Primarily, 99% written by those who are Jews, those who are Hebrews, the people from Israel, right? But Luke is a Gentile, right? There is historical evidence, and, and, and most scholars agree, that Luke would have been a Gentile. Well, where are we getting that? Why, why am I mentioning this, and why is this important? Well, if we look back to that Colossians passage that I read earlier about uh, Luke being there, he's actually mentioned in a group that are non-circumcision group, right? 
back in the writing of Colossians, if you want to see lots of discussion about circumcision and why it's important and uh, what the Judaizers were trying to do by requiring circumcision for the Gentiles, Paul has a long discussion about that. And at the end of the letter, he mentions that from the circumcision group or those who are from Jewish traditions, those who had converted to Christianity, um, they are circumcised. And he mentions that. And he lists out the people who are ministering along with him. And then he gets to the second set that are Gentiles who are ministering with him. And Luke is included in that list. That's our biblical basis for that. And that's our understanding of why Luke would have been a Gentile. I think it's important because when you're writing to Gentiles as a Gentile, you, know, you should understand the things that they are going to uh, find important. You're going to understand the way that they think. And being a Gentile, being one who was very steeped in Greek uh, learning and education, he was able to communicate to them and write to them in such a way that he was, he was talking their language, not just Greek, but he was also addressing some of the hangups they had, right? And, and so it, it is a wonderful grace of God that God chose to use Luke that he had him paired with Paul, two highly intellectual gentlemen writing in the New Testament to convince people that Jesus was the Christ and to show them in Scripture how he had fulfilled all that had been written about him in the entire scope of Scripture. Um, as Luke writes, uh, the differentiation uh, from Matthew and Mark, again, uh, are, are pretty pretty significant. In Luke's gospel, there are 20 accounts of miracles being performed. Six of these are recorded nowhere, nowhere else in Scripture. That's the, the thing that I just think is so awesome about this is if it were not for the, uh, the writing of Luke, we don't have those accounts, right? We don't have those to study today in Sunday school. We don't have them to preach about because they're only contained in Luke. Luke's gospel also contains 23 parables, and as you know, those parables are the teachings of Christ where he is communicating to us something about the kingdom of heaven. Eighteen of these are found nowhere else in Scripture. Think about the prodigal son. Think about the good Samaritan, both only found in the gospel of Luke. So, I hope I have, I have given you enough background on who Luke was and why was he writing and who was his audience and what are some of the distinctions between Matthew and Mark. And now what I'd like to do is move into uh, providing you a simplified outline. Now, anytime anyone sets forth to try to put an outline on a 24 chapter book in the Bible, you can get super detailed. Okay. And you can have sub points. And if I was to stand up here and give you like a 10 major points with four sub points for each one, you would, you would not get all of these things written down, right? And I would have to just do, do handouts. So what we're going to do instead, we're, we're going to do six, which I hope is manageable. But these six provide us a very general overarching outline for uh, the gospel of Luke. And then once we have these six, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fill in this by giving you some scriptures that go along with each one of those. And what's important to note about this is we are going to see the gospel revealed to us as we fill in these points. So here is our simplified outline for Luke. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, going through chapter 2, verse 52, we see details around the birth and early life of Christ. 
Picking up in chapter 3, verse 1, and going through chapter 4, 13, we will see Christ's preparation for public ministry. Following that, in chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 9, verse 50, we'll see his ministry in Galilee. Chapter 9, 51 through 19, 27, we'll see his ministry leading to Jerusalem. Chapter 19, verse 28 through 21, verse 38, we'll see his ministry in Jerusalem. And finally, chapter 22, verse 1 through 24, verse 53, we'll see his betrayal, trial, death, and resurrection. So if we were to look at these and you were to try to pick out key verses from all of that, all, chapter 20, you know, all 24 chapters, we're going to try to pick out some key verses. Here are some verses that I would suggest would be wonderful key verses that would help you fill in that outline and help you communicate what is the message of the Gospel of Luke. So let's begin first with the birth and early life of Christ. The verse that I've, verses that I've selected for this is, is, um, is chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, which says, Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was at the house in line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, and because there was no room available for them in the inn. When we begin telling the gospel, it's important for us to begin with the bad news. And the bad news, as we hopefully tell people as we begin to talk about the gospel, is that every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The world is full of sinners. And because of the world being full of sin, God had to act on our behalf. And God acted on our behalf here in the beginning of, chap uh, of Luke ch uh, chapter 1 by sending his own son, by sending Jesus into the world. And this passage we read that we, we see so often at, at, at Christmas time, we see Christ coming in a humble way. We see Christ coming to Nazareth and Galilee, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, all to fulfill prophecy of his coming in the Old Testament. We see him being wrapped in swaddling clothes and lied in a manger, showing the humility of Christ's coming. Again, it's important for us to begin at the beginning with sin, but then we need to know that God acted on our behalf by sending his own son. And Christ would grow, and as Christ would grow and develop and become a young man, we see him begin his preparation for his public ministry. And as we do, the verses that I have chosen for, for this section are about Christ being baptized. And this is from Luke chapter 3, 16, and then 21 uh, or through 22, 16 through 22. And scripture says, John answered them all. This is John the Baptist. And he says, I baptize you with water, but no one who is more power, but, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. And then along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. And when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else, and he locked John up in prison. And when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And he was praying, and as he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my son, with you I am well pleased. In the scripture, we see John the Baptist testifying to who Christ is, one who was coming who was more powerful, one who would come who we, he, he said he was not even worthy to untie the straps of the sandals, who was going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. He's talking about Jesus. And as we see in the second part of that scripture, starting in verse 21, Christ comes to him and is baptized. And as we discussed, each time we baptize someone, Christ is baptized not because he's sinful. He's not baptized because he has uh, to ceremonially wash some uncleanness away. He is baptized to set an example for us in obedience to God the Father. And we see the Holy Spirit descending. This is a beautiful example of a picture for us of the Trinity in Scripture. We see the Son being baptized. We see physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And we hear the Father speaking from heaven which, and says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Christ is being prepared here for his ministry on earth. And this is the beginning. As, as, as we, would, we would see if we continued reading, Christ is going to be tempted and he is going to go out in the wilderness and he is going to rebuke Satan with scripture and there are lots of other things that are going to happen. But this is where Christ has been prepared as he has been baptized to begin his earthly ministry. As we look on forward to the ministry in Galilee, Christ begins to teach and he begins to say many things and he begins to Tell the world about who he is. And we're going to look now at chapter 4, verse 18 through 21, as we look at this ministry in Galilee. And scripture says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight of the blind and to set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As we read this, hopefully you recognize this scripture. This is Christ reading the scripture in the temple. And it says, He then rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Christ, in reading this scripture, has claimed that he is the one who was sent to release the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to set free the oppressed, 
He is the one who is fulfilling that. He is proclaiming his deity. If we didn't notice that in reading it as he was prepared at his baptism, surely Christ proclaiming it to the church after reading this scripture is a clear sign of who he is and what he has come to do. Christ is on a mission from God. Christ has said who he is. And Luke has recorded it for us so that we can remember, so that we can read, so that we can proclaim. This Christ, this Jesus, knew who he was. He knew what he had come to do. He is the Son of God, as he proclaimed, and he is the fulfillment of all of the Scriptures. As we look at his ministry leading to Jerusalem, now as Christ teaches, we are skipping over obviously tons of information that are contained in the parables. His, his teaching about uh, how to love one another and how to love God and how to be a good neighbor, all of those things we're going to skip over because we don't have enough time in an overview sermon to cover all of those. But certainly we are thankful for the fact that they have been preserved for us in Luke's writing. As we move to chapter 18, we're going to look at the ministry leading to Jerusalem. As Jesus got closer to the time for him to go to Jerusalem, he increasingly began to predict and tell his disciples and tell others about the fact that he was going to suffer and die. This was not something that was understood. And in our telling of the gospel, remember, we start with the bad news of sin. We, we can tell them about Jesus Christ coming at Christmas. We can tell them about him proclaiming who he was and others proclaiming who he was. We can tell about the wonderful miracles and his teachings that he, that he did while he was in Galilee. But as we approach Jerusalem, all eyes should be on the cross. All eyes are now going to turn to what happens to Christ in Jerusalem. And in chapter 18, verses 31 through 34, it says... Then he took the twelve aside and he told them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the sayings was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. This is true for many today when they hear the gospel message, when they hear about forgiveness of sins, when they hear about a God who loves them so much that he sent his son to die in their place, one who would, who would come and live the perfect life that they could not, one who would not deserve death but would willingly accept it because he desired our forgiveness, because he desired, desired our right relationship with his father God. And because of his love, Christ would endure all of those things. We want to make sure, too, that as we, as we talk about Christ and as, as we see Christ talking here, all of Scripture is about Christ. He came to fulfill all things. From Genesis 1 to the end, it's all about Christ. It's not like he just showed up and we suddenly flipped the script once we moved from Malachi to Matthew. No, all Scripture, Old Testament is written and is about him. Christ knew that. Christ is telling us that. He's telling his disciples, but they didn't get it. 
And as he moves into his ministry in Jerusalem, things will become more and more clear to them, but it will be difficult for them to do anything about it because they were not in control of it. They might say that they will never deny him, but they will. They might say that they're with him till the end, but they will abandon him. And ultimately, Christ will be alone. So the ministry in Jerusalem scripture I selected was chapter 19, 37 through 40. And it says, Now he came near to the path down to the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully and with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. These people who are cheering, we have songs that we sing today about blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. How quickly that changes. How quickly that moves from praising God to shouts of crucify him. And as we look at our final section, we'll see all of that come through in the betrayal, trial, death, and resurrection of Christ. The scripture for that is chapter 24, 44 through 53. And it says, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from high. And then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising God. Here's the good news of Luke. All that we have read, all that Luke has, has researched, all that Luke has preserved for us leads us to the to the concluding of Christ's work on earth. And we are to understand that this is not the end, right? This is not the end of the story and he's gone and there's, there's nothing else, right? We know that he has gone to prepare a place for us. We know that he will return for us. And as we get to the end of Luke, we want to be in the same, uh, the same mindset of those who saw Christ carried up. We want to worship him. We want to return with great joy. We want to continue in our praising of him. And as we read this book, and as we recount some of what we can remember from this book, as we witness and talk to others, we want to leave them with that good news story. We may start with the bad news of your sin. We may explain how Christ did all of these things and how Christ taught all of these things and all of these things are important for us to know, but we want to leave them ultimately at the point where there is a decision to be made. We either believe that Christ did all of these things, that all of these facts that Luke has recorded for us are true, 
And it's either going to change our lives. It's going to change our hearts. We are going to repent and follow Jesus or we are going to reject him. And the hope that we have as believers is 100% bound up in the fact that this is not the end with Christ ascending. It's, it's bound up in the fact that he did those things, but he is going to return for us. And so the hope for the person who is lost is you have forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you shall be saved. And then you can be counted among these who are rejoicing for all that Christ has said. You are rejoicing for how he was the fulfillment of the entirety of Scripture. You can rejoice for the fact that he is going to return for you one day. The Gospel of Luke is a wonderful, wonderful book. The writing is very detailed, very, very wonderful stories of Christ's teaching captured for us and preserved for us. And it's one of the books in Scripture that we come to often, right, excited to hear sermons from Luke, excited to read at Christmas time. And I think we, we all gravitate towards books that are containing the life of Christ, as we should. But we should also remember that all of this has been preserved. All of this points us to Christ. And so as we read through some of the books in the Old Testament, especially that are difficult, we should be reminded that Christ came to fulfill that. Christ came to, to, to fulfill those prophecies. Christ came to set right all of those things that were wrong. And Luke helps us with that. So this evening, as we prepare to close, I hope that you read the book of Luke with the understanding of who he was writing to, why he was writing, that he's writing to Gentiles just like us, right? He's writing to people who were not Jews. His audience was, was being taught, and he's writing so that they would be encouraged that all that they had been taught was true and that they would believe upon Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin. Please join me as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Luke. Lord, we thank you for, um, for, for, for having Luke write, Lord, for choosing Luke. We thank you for the miracles. We thank you for the parables. We thank you for how instructive it is for our lives and, and for the living of our lives for you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And Lord God, we, we, we thank you for the hope that we have in our faith in him. We pray that you would be with us now as we, as we go our separate ways. We thank you and we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.